Well, I'm excited that our, uh, our fifth, sixth, seventh graders, our cohort kids are up with us in the service today. I'm also excited that we don't have to eat that slog that we saw in the video. All right, <clears throat> put my special jacket on tonight. I'm wondering if, uh, if any of our special guests might be able to, to help me. Anyone know what the symbol is here? Yeah, I should ask the cool kids over here. Rebel Alliance, that's right. From what movie, right? From Star Wars, all the Star Wars movies. Can anyone name um, some of the great Star Wars characters that you really like? Darth Vader. Ray. No. Han Solo. Oh, thank you, Carol. I knew you could come through. Yeah, so we've got all of these big characters, and, and if you're really nerdy, you might know some of their real names. You know, you've got James Earl Jones as the voice of Darth Vader, and Harrison Ford, and all of these famous people. We know those people if you're a Star Wars person. Now, does anyone see the symbol in the back of this coat? Do you know what that is? ILM. ILM, you know what that is, okay. Industrial Light and Magic. They are the studio that uh, do all the special effects and the animations for um, the Star Wars movies. Now, when you watch the credits at the end of a Star Wars movie, there's this slow crawl of Luke Skywalker played by Mark Hamill and all of the famous people. And then after all the famous people go by, it gets faster and the font gets smaller and there's like hundreds of third assistant to the key grip guy and the water boy and you know, all these people. And if you look closely, there's this name, Dan Shoemaker, who is part of ILM, who gave me that coat when I moved away. He was part of our church in California before we moved up here. And Dan was a fun guy to watch the movies with because he could say, oh, I drew that blaster or that explosion was mine, you know, and he could tell you all these little details. Now, compared to James Earl Jones or Harrison Ford or Daisy Ridley, Dan Shoemaker's name didn't stand out. And yet, he and hundreds like him had a vital role in making a movie that many of us have loved. Now, last week, we explored Luke 23, or 22 and 23, and we witnessed four large groups of people. The religious establishment, the world powers, the secular elite, and the 99 percenters, as we might call them today, or the general population. And we saw how when you take those four groups as a whole, they represent the entire world. And the entire world in those stories were putting Jesus on trial. And what we saw is that actually the script was flipped and, and Jesus was really putting those four groups on trial. And somewhere in those four groups, you and I can find ourselves. So in essence, all of humanity is on trial in those stories, and we've all been found guilty. When you arrest the creator and savior of the world, when you obstruct justice and rig a trial, when you follow the populace at the expense of the facts, you are part of the problem. Now this evening, we're going to come to a part of the story where Jesus is crucified. It is a long passage full of theological significance. And because it is so rich, I'm gonna preach it two times. I'm gonna preach the exact same passage tonight, and I'm gonna preach the exact same passage next week. Next week, we're gonna focus on themes like atonement, and things like how big the cross is for the world situation. 
But tonight, we're going to narrow it down, and I'm going to focus on four characters who might be at the end of the credits of a typical movie, four little people who have a significant reaction to Jesus. And in looking at those four people, I hope you and I can find ourselves somewhere. Now, you can tell I've got a problem with my voice tonight, so I am going to need four volunteers to help read the scripture. I don't, you just need to be able to read and you need to love scripture. So, Emily, come on up. And I see Elsa. And uh, I'll just give you my one Bible. And I need two more volunteers, Tommy and Chad, thank you. Elsa, let's come over here. And Em, I'll have you read chapter 23, verses 26 through 32. And then Elsa, you. Okay. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country, and placed him on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of the people, and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others also who are criminals were being led away to be put with him to death. When they came to the place called the Skull, There they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were, who were hanged there were hurling, was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, and said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemn- condemnation? And we, are indeed, and we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you, came, when you come in your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in a paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. 
and all the crowds who came together for the spectacle, when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who accompanied him from Galilee were standing at a distance, seeing these things. And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. And he took it down and wrapped it in a linen cloth and laid him in a tomb cut into the rock where no one had ever lain. It was the preparation day and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and perfumes. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Tommy. Thanks, everybody. All right, so the first of our four characters is this Simon of Cyrene. We don't know a lot about Simon of Cyrene. He's not one of the main characters. He wasn't one of the 12 disciples, and to our knowledge, not one of the 72. He doesn't even get a speaking part, and yet he's present by name in all four of the Gospels. He's immortalized in Christian art over the centuries and has the great privilege of helping Jesus to bear his cross. So how did this come to be? Jesus had been condemned to death by crucifixion by Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor of Judea. Crucifixion was one of the most painful methods of execution ever devised by humans. It's more akin to torture than to death, and its primarily malicious intent was to humiliate the victim and all that they stood for as a deterrent so that others would never do what that victim had done. It was so shameful that Roman citizens were prevented from being crucified. It was only reserved for people like terrorists or rebels who resisted the empire. Oftentimes, Romans would crucify people on hilltops or alongside roads on the way to major cities so that the maximum amount of people would see them. Crucifixion was designed to bring a slow death. A person's arms were usually nailed or bound. Even if they were nailed, they were always bound with rope as well because the weight of the person would sometimes tear. In order to breathe, the person would have to push up from either a a nail into their feet or their feet bound onto the cross. It's the only way to get air for their diaphragm to move. And death usually came sometimes days after crucifixion because the victim was simply too exhausted too dehydrated, too overcome with shock and those symptoms to simply will themselves to breathe any longer. The humiliation began immediately after conviction. The condemned would have to carry the crossbeam of the instrument of their own death from the court to the place of their execution along the side of a road or in Jesus' case to the top of Golgotha, which means Skull Hill. The problem was is that Jesus, unlike the other criminals, had already been beaten, sleep-deprived, whipped, and scourged with a different whip called a cat of nine tails. This whip would have balls of lead, shards of broken pottery tied into the leather braids at the end. It was designed to tear the skin. 
The Roman guards noticed that Jesus was struggling under the burden of the crossbeam, but it was too shameful for a Roman to carry, and so they looked into the crowd and saw this dude standing there named Simon of Cyrene. He said, you carry this crossbeam. Cyrene is a region in modern-day Tripoli, which is in Libya. Simon of Cyrene was an African. His name is Greek, which is probably because of the influence of Alexander the Great centuries earlier. To this day, for example, in, e in Egypt, there's Alexandria, right, as a major city. Egypt is an Arabic-speaking Arabic nation, uh, but there's a Greek-speaking, uh, a Greek name there. So Simon was an African from Libya with a Greek name who was likely a convert to Judaism and had traveled as a pilgrim to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. Talk about multiculturalism before it was cool. The text says that Simon had just come into town from the countryside. He had likely just shown up into the city. He's checking out what all this commotion is, why there's this parade going down to the street. What an interesting turn in the narrative. Up until this point, we have seen world powers at work. The powers of darkness, the sovereignty of God. It has seemed like individuals in most of chapter 22 and the beginning of 23 were just plot devices into this story of bigger powers. But here, we have one man thrust into this whole situation. Isn't that often the way things are in your life? Jesus comes to us by surprise. We think we know so well what our life is going to be like, what it should be like, and then out of the blue, something beyond our control surprises us, forces us to respond to new information, to new circumstances, to new reality. Reminds me of that transcendent moment in Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring. The hobbit Frodo Baggins had inherited the ring of power from his uncle Bilbo. The ring is wearing heavy on his heart. Evil from every corner is trying to capture the ring and death seems like it is lurking everywhere. Tired and exhausted, Frodo considers the fact that this evil Sauron, his rise to power, the finding of the ring, the onslaught of evil, it seemed to coincidentally be plaguing him in his time, in his generation, imposing on his once comfortable life back at the Shire. And Frodo confesses to his friend and mentor Gandalf, he writes, or he says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. In many ways, Simon of Cyrene doesn't get to choose whether or not to help Jesus when a Roman soldier tells a foreigner to pick up a piece of wood, you do it. But this personal encounter with Jesus, even in this less than ideal circumstance, has a lasting effect. Somehow, in Simon's service to Jesus, in this instance, literally carrying his cross, it opens up his heart and his mind to who Jesus is. We don't know exactly what happened, but we do know the result. 
In the Gospel of Mark, there's the added detail that Simon of Cyrene is the father of Alexander and Rufus. First of all, whenever the biblical authors just throw out first names like that without an explanation of who they are, you know that they know their audience knows who they are. It's the mark of authenticity. It's something that biblical scholars, even those who, don't, who aren't orthodox biblical scholars, look at and they say, oh, there were probably real people named that because there's no explanation. Second, in Romans 16.13, Paul specifically greets a certain Rufus, part of the church. The evidence points to the fact that Simon of Cyrene's children become believers of Jesus. Now, Simon of Cyrene met Jesus at the grime and shame of his lowest point. That would be the point that most people would be most embarrassed on the way to their crucifixion. But as I've been saying all along in this Lenten series, Jesus' glory is revealed in his sacrifice for us. Simon witnessed that glory. He even had an opportunity to share in the glory when he accompanied Jesus to the cross. Back in Luke chapter 9, Jesus says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. And in many ways, Simon is an example of how we might open ourselves up to the work of Jesus. No one can literally carry Jesus' crossbeam around anymore, but we can join, in, join Jesus in the work that he's doing. On Tuesday night, a group of volunteers from five or six other churches met in this room to celebrate the, the closing of the cold weather shelter and the work that was done there. Many of you had a part in having a shelter open to women and children for 90 days in a row this winter. And one man shared about his experience. He was well-dressed and self-described as a Christian for a long time who had mostly lived for his own comfort and his own lifestyle. He was well-respected. He served on various church leadership boards for decades. Um, and he never thought that he would volunteer at a cold-weather shelter. But when he heard the opportunity announced at his church, <clears throat> he knew in his heart that God was inviting him to serve. He couldn't shake the feeling. It was like he was conscripted by Jesus to carry this part of his cross. And in his own life, this man was competent, put together, um, the kind of guy you would think is a CEO or something like that. But when it came for the first night to serve this homeless shelter right in our own building, he didn't know if he could handle it. He didn't know how he would relate to these women. And it was there, being with some people at their lowest, that he was also able to see their beauty and their dignity and glory. And as he, he was able to see that in many ways, the women from the street who were staying here had more faith in Jesus than he had remembered having ever in his life. Jesus' death on the cross touched Simon of Cyrene personally and powerfully. And he continues to reach us when we join in his redemptive work of sacrifice for the sake of others. Right. Well, let's look at some other personal responses to Jesus. Jesus has led, um, <clears throat> is led to the place of his crucifixion, and on either side of him to be crucified are these criminals. Some English texts suggest that maybe these guys were robbers or something like that. But in the Greek text, 
it says that these men were more likely Sakari or dagger men, the types of people who are political revolutionaries who would steal or um, stab people in the alleyways, Roman officials, people like that. These were what we would call freedom fighters or terrorists, depending on your perspective. And among the mockers and scoffers is one man who responds well. While on one side of Jesus, a criminal mocks him, on the other side is a criminal who speaks the truth. He admits that he has committed a crime worthy of death, but he also confesses Jesus' innocence. And then he does something even more that confessed the truth about Jesus. He puts his hope in him, and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Now this man didn't know Jesus was the son of God. He did not know that Jesus would be resurrected from the dead. He didn't have the Holy Spirit or the witness of the church, but being there with Jesus was enough for him to realize that Jesus was someone special, someone to be revered. This man, I think, is an example to every one of us because none of us knows Jesus as fully as he can be known. None of us has perfect faultless doctrine. None of us has the perfect understanding or theology of the ways of God. But I would argue that if you have the the Bible and if you have the sacraments of the church and you have the fellowship of the church and you have the Holy Spirit, then you are light years ahead of where this guy could have been. And at the same time, all this guy did to receive salvation was to confess his sin and to put his trust in Jesus That is the foundation of what it means to follow Jesus. And if you can do that, and you can do that, you can be saved. Now, the standard Jewish thought about death was this, that you die, and then you're dead. And then at the end of the age, you would be resurrected. The righteous would be resurrected to new life. But Jesus goes one step further here. He declares that this confessing criminal would be with him in paradise. Now, I don't know what you think of when I say the word paradise. Maybe for you, it's an over-the-water tiki hut in Tahiti. Or for others, maybe an alpine cabin in the snow with like ski-in-ski-out accommodations. Or some other, I don't know, modern notion of paradise. I, only, I, I don't know what you think of when you think of paradise, but I can almost guarantee it wasn't what Jesus was thinking of when he said paradise. Paradise is a word adopted into Judaism that was from the Persians. And it's a term referring to a walled garden, specifically a walled garden that a king owns. And the idea is this, that paradise is when a king invites an outsider into his fellowship, and they walk together in the safety and in the fellowship of this walled garden. At first, it had nothing to do with eschatology or end times or afterlife. So in terms of what Jesus is referring to, it isn't like a cosmic beach scene or a place you go when you die. He's referring, rather, to an invitation for this criminal to be made right with God, to walk with him in fellowship just like Adam and Eve did walking with God in the garden before the fall. Does that ring a bell? 
It's the promise of eternal salvation. If you ever wonder if what you have done prevents you from the forgiveness of Jesus, if you ever felt that what you have said, thought, done, or not done disqualified you, made you feel like you're too far gone, hear the good news. The second character, the criminal, tells us otherwise. Through simple confession of his own sin and his trust in Jesus, salvation has come to him. I want you to understand that that good news goes in two directions. Some of you already get that. I love that you do. Others of you need to hear you are not too far gone. And still others of us need to be reminded that the people in our lives that we may be tempted to write off, that we've given up praying for, start praying again because they're never too far gone for Jesus's redemption. Amen? Amen. All right. Our third character is a Roman soldier, a centurion, a man in charge of roughly a hundred soldiers, and this guy is likely the one tasked with overseeing the crucifixion of these three men, including Jesus. It was on his watch that Jesus has mocked and beaten. It is on his watch that Jesus has mocked and offered sour wine instead of a real drink when his mouth is parched. It was likely at his command, that a soldier's spear pierced the side of Jesus, as it describes in, in John's gospel. And it was under his authority that the soldiers gambled for Jesus' clothes right under his cross in an effort to humiliate him further. Because if the clothes are on the, on the ground being gambled for, where are they not? Right. In this scene, the centurion witnesses the dignity and the demeanor of Jesus as he died a righteous man. In typical ancient martyr stories, Jewish martyrdom, Greek martyrdom, Persian martyrdom, sometimes Christian martyrdom, there's oftentimes a noble death, but at the end, there's a curse. An imprecatory psalm, sometimes a quote from an imprecatory psalm that God would deliver and smite and, and some of these curses are crazy, like that people would have STDs and that, you know, like their children would have four heads and crazy things like that. So, I mean, it is a common thing at the end of life for these noble martyrs to curse. Jesus does not curse. He never calls down death on his enemies on the cross. He only asks for forgiveness for these people who don't know what they're doing. And in Luke's gospel, the centurion confesses Jesus' innocence both Matthew and Mark note that the centurion claimed, surely this was the Son of God. When the world powers and the frenzied crowds have played their part to put Jesus on the cross, God was doing his part. God's plan all along is to become flesh, to give himself for the wicked world who could not save themselves. And here, under the shadow of evil and darkness, individuals were having their eyes opened. Jesus hadn't even risen from the grave yet. And still, these small bit characters are responding in truthful confession about who Jesus is. 
You know, we live in a world that largely denies the uniqueness of Jesus, let alone his resurrection or his kingship and lordship over all things. But that doesn't mean that he can't reach you. It doesn't mean he won't reach you. It doesn't mean that he can't and won't reach your loved ones, reach your neighbor. It's personal, you see. What Jesus has done on the cross, it has personal implications. I see in this room right now so many people I know your personal stories with the the crucified and risen Jesus. You know it's personal. He's done something in you and for you. And he can do it again for those of you who are, have slipped. He can do it again for those of you who think you're up against a brick wall and aren't growing. He can do it for those people in our lives who we've written off. It's part of the good news of the story. It's personal. Which leads us to our fourth character. First, we had Simon of Cyrene, who represents the person who comes to Jesus through identification with his suffering. Then we had the criminal on the cross who is the one who's burdened with guilt and shame and he finds forgiveness and relief in Jesus. Maybe, maybe you identify with that. And then there's the Roman soldier who was the enemy of Jesus turned confessor as he experiences the quality of Jesus' life. Maybe the Roman soldier for you begs the question, who do I think Jesus is? But our fourth character is the one who is on the inside. He's one of the elite. He's from the group that is often the toughest in our world to reach because they have the comforts of the world. They have the network of the privileged relationships, and that man, of course, is Joseph of Arimathea, who is part of the Jewish council. He was a leader. He was respected enough to be able to, to feel comfortable to go to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and say, can I have the body of Jesus? Joseph is introduced as a good and righteous man. And Luke's gospel being introduced as a good and righteous man makes me think of some other small characters, maybe you too. Who else was a good and righteous man or person? Uh, Zechariah, Simeon, Anna. These are other small bit characters way down on the movie credits who are important to the story. Joseph was part of the Sanhedrin, the council that condemned Jesus. But we learn from Luke that he was one of the minority who wasn't in agreement with the Sanhedrin. He represents the one whose faith is in the minority. Anyone work in a place like that? Anyone live in a place like that? Anyone vote in a place like that? Joseph represents the one whose actions don't seem to matter. He's the one who votes his conscience even though he knows it won't count in the, in, in the end verdict. And yet 2,000 years later, I'm talking about Joseph of Arimathea, the small bit guy at the end of the credits. We're talking about his name. He voted with integrity in the council knowing his vote probably wouldn't count. He so cares for Jesus that at great personal cost, he puts Jesus in his own tomb 
and with a group of faithful women. By the way, I added the word faithful. Luke never does because no women in his gospel are ever unfaithful. Do that study on Women's Month. There's no women in Luke's gospel who are unfaithful. So I didn't even talk about them because it's like, duh. In that moment, Joseph must have seen his act as a lost cause. He had no idea Jesus would rise from the grave. He had no strategy that this act of devotion and kindness by taking the body of this dead revolutionary and putting it in his own expensive tomb and doing a right burial and putting the spice, he had no idea that those actions would pay off in any kind of political way or advance his social standing or get him right with God. I mean, let's face it, Jesus' own disciples at this point in the day, they think Jesus, um, what do they think? I mean, Peter went back to fishing. He's depressed. They must have thought it was a failed endeavor. See, Joseph is a man who does the little things who's so moved by Jesus that he lives with integrity even in a world and around others who do not. Joseph is the model for those of us who may grow weary in trying to to follow Jesus in a world that doesn't follow Jesus, who who go to school maybe with kids and you're surrounded by kids who, who don't believe in the things that you believe, who don't see how special Jesus is to you, how much he loves them, and it can be difficult, can't it, to try and to toe that line. Joseph represents the one, those of us who try and do the little things, when in all honesty, we don't see how it really matters in the scheme of the big things. But the story of Joseph reminds us that Jesus sees those little things at a personal level. He knows the sacrifices you make. He knows what is at stake in the bottom line of your career, of your social standing. Nothing goes unnoticed and nothing goes unrewarded. Next week is the time that I'm going to talk about the cosmic consequences of the cross of Jesus. But for today, consider our four characters. Consider the fact that Jesus' sacrificial death on the cross has direct implications for you and the people in your life. Today, it's personal. How will you respond? Like the doubters and the mockers or with humility and faith like these four nobodies at the end of the credit reel? Let's pray. Lord, I wish it were that cut and dry. But I also confess how much I resonate with the line in the song we sang earlier, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. I'm grateful for these four lives that made it into your gospel that you influenced for the better. I'm grateful that none of them were perfect and yet we're preaching about them. And that gives me hope that you don't require perfection 
of perfect doctrine you desire and require <clears throat> us throwing ourselves at you. To whom else would we turn anyway? So Lord, I pray you would receive my and our scraps of faith, our shreds of hope, and that you would strengthen our faith and renew our hope. We pray now for those in our lives who we so desperately want you uh, to influence who we want to know your love. Soften hearts and open minds. <clears throat>